The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you pray with me? Father God, more desperately than anything in all the world, I want these people to see. I want us to see together. I want us to come to your word this morning and not just behold the wonder of a virgin conceiving and giving birth, but a, but a wonder far greater than that. The wonder that the God of the universe whom we have rebelled against our almighty and infinitely holy creator would not just come to visit humanity, but to be joined to us forever. So, Father, I pray as we study this text together this morning that you would give us the eyes necessary to behold such a thing. And not just to stare upon it as some curiosity, some historic abnormality, but to see in it our only hope of salvation. That you would wreck some folks with this word. That you would call some people to life by this word. That others you would encourage and sustain and endure with this word. In short, we're asking you to do the impossible because we know that nothing is impossible with you. Father, we trust that you will do this because we ask it in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you are turning in your Bibles to the first chapter of Luke's gospel, I would remind you of what we spent our last three Lord's days together doing. As we have walked through this Advent season together, we gathered together on the first Sunday of Advent to consider the incarnation from the perspective of eternity past. Who is this one? Who is this word who has become flesh? And on the second Sunday of Advent, we consider together the incarnation from the perspective of the garden. Why was it necessary for this word to become flesh? Then last week, we considered together the incarnation from the perspective of the glories of heaven. What is the end for which this word has become flesh? And what I'm asking of you this morning is to take all of that to take all that we have studied about the incarnation from the glories of heaven, from eternity past, from the fall of man in the garden and try to pack all of that in to what we see this morning as we consider the incarnation from the perspective of a young virgin girl. And we ask, how did the word become flesh? I've shared with you often my fear for us as a congregation this Christmas season, that we would see Jesus as the reason for the season, but completely miss the message. Who is this Christ? And what has he come to do? So with that in mind, I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We're going to be reading Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Herein, we find everything that we need to know about God and godliness. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. And try to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, again, we're asking your help. By the working of your spirit, let these not just be words on a page, but the voice of our God crying out to us, words that penetrate our heart and leave us forever changed. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come to this text this morning that's oftentimes referred to as the Annunciation. It's a declaration. This angel, Gabriel, coming to this young virgin girl and declaring to her the way that the God of the universe, this triune God who had planned this thing from eternity past, that all that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had purposed to do, this angel now comes to this young girl and tells her how it will be done through her. What an incredible thing to consider. This young girl and this message that now comes to her, and we don't feel the full weight of it when it's, perhaps stretched out over four weeks, as we, we, we just try to get a different glimpse at the incarnation and, and store up in our heart what it means as we then come to this text. And I've asked you to bring all that with you. But of course, there have been men of old who have sought to put in to concise statements what this means. And there were some men in a place called Chalcedon, and they put together this confession 450 years later. And part of that confession reads like this. They speak of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was begotten before the ages from the Father. As regards to his divinity and in the last days, for us and for our salvation, the same born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, as regards to his humanity. Mary, the mother of God. You say that kind of thing in Protestant churches and people get real jumpy, don't they? Mary, the mother of God. And I'm afraid that what's happened for many of us is we've overcorrected. Because of some of the insanity in the Roman Catholic Church and the veneration that they have for this woman called Mary, that we've never really slowed down to take time to consider what has God done for her? What message does he have for us in the way that he worked through this girl and Mary, the mother of God? Now, of course, this is not meant to tell us that somehow from Mary came the divine nature of Christ. She did not give birth to God the Son, and yet it speaks to who this one was that was within her womb. It's a statement about the personhood of Christ, that truly he is the Son of the Most High God. That we weren't just playing games here when we say that the one who would come from her would be the Son of the Most High. That truly she is the Mother of God. But again, I tell you, perhaps we've, we've overcorrected. We've never slowed down to consider, but... What does that actually mean? How how has God accomplished this thing? And what can we learn from Mary's response to this message from this angel? And because of that, we've missed some overwhelming truth. Just magnificent statements about God and the way that he works in humanity, about God and the things that he does to bring about our salvation. And I thought about that a lot this week. Why do we seem to just gloss over Mary? Is that really all that it is? Is it just a rejection of Rome? Just a rejection of Mary's not one that's to be prayed to. Mary's not one that we're to seek prayers from. Mary is not one that has some special access to Christ. Is that really all this is? Just an overcorrection. And if so, is that appropriate? I want you to think about the respect and the honor that we pay to men like Abraham and Moses and Elijah and James and John and Peter and Paul. We study their lives. We consider their interactions with God. We value their character and the way that they interact, the way that God has has used them 
to bring about his redemptive purposes. And then we come to this one in whom's in whose womb the son of the most high dwells. And we act as if it's nothing. As I prayed earlier, just some type of a curiosity. Huh? The son of the most high God dwelling in the womb of a teenager. Isn't that interesting? But surely God has something more for us here. So I do need to tell you before we begin taking apart this text and considering what the good Dr. Luke has to say to us here. This is not going to be an apologetic sermon. Apologetic meaning just trying to use outside proofs and worldly arguments to try and somehow convince you that a virgin actually conceived and gave birth to a child. Now, I know that there can be a place for that. There is a place and there is an appropriate time um, when we go out to skeptics or to non-believers or even to new believers that are struggling and wondering if their faith is just a bunch of pixie dust, if they're foolish to believe in the things that the word has to say, that there is a place for an apologetic message. There's a place for helping people sort through, reason through these arguments. But it hurts my heart that so many pastors use Christmas and Easter as the time to do that. Now, if you're a non-believer who is here this morning, again, if you're skeptical, if you are doubtful, if you don't yet know what you think of the story of a virgin conceiving and giving birth, I, I welcome you and I'm glad that you're here. And my call to you this morning would be to hear this message and believe. But the primary purpose for our gathering together this morning is exactly that. It's a gathering of the saints. We are those who have seen and believe. We have beheld the word of God and by the spirit of God, we have been brought to place our trust in this God who performs miracles. This whole book is filled with miracles from beginning to end. If you don't believe, That a virgin can conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and give birth to this one who is called son of the most high. How in the world would you believe that by the same power this one was raised from the dead? Really, that's the challenge to us at every step of the way. You get to the very first words of this book and you're confronted with the supernatural. With the God of the universe. Bringing from nothing, everything. So it's almost as if God says, no, 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 no. We don't get two verses in before you've got to decide. Do you believe that the God of the universe does the impossible? Because what happens is pastors get up and I don't want to bag on other pastors, but I've got to got to make clear why we do what we do. And I've got to warn you of some of the nonsense that's out there, because what happens is men will stand and they'll begin to feel bashful about saying that a virgin conceived and gave birth. They'll start to feel foolish and silly because we're not a bunch of backwards people like they were in the first century. Right. Let me just let me just tell you that good Dr. Luke knew where babies came from. This young girl, Mary, she had probably been there when her sisters, maybe even her mother, had given birth. They had had the talk. Mary knew where babies came from. But men today, we think that we're perhaps smarter than this. And so pastors, they will get up and they'll just they'll try to figure out how can I make this message palatable to the world? Instead of trying to consider that what our goal is in this place is figure out how can we make man acceptable to God. So we're confronted just as we're confronted at the very beginning of the Old Testament before you can even get into the rest of the message. The question is, will you believe in this supernatural miracle working God or will you not? We get into the New Testament and it's the very same kind of thing hitting us in the face. Will you demand all the answers? Will you demand that this thing makes sense? And I've I've seen the craziness that this leads to. 
Like I know that they've now discovered that there's some kind of lizard out there that can give birth without a mate. And so pastors will start pointing to that kind of thing and saying, see, 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 it's not that crazy because a lizard could do it. And I told you about this when we were studying the story of the prophet Jonah. Jonah, who was swallowed and lived in the belly of a whale for three days. And I told you about how there was a YouTube video of some kayaker that a whale swallowed for just a second and spit it back out. And all the Christians go, see, 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 it can be done. Beloved, if you need a YouTube video to convince you that the God of the universe can send a wind, can send a storm, can send a whale to accomplish his purpose in supernatural ways, then you're already lost. Actually, Jonathan sent me a text this week to tell me that a boy in Uganda got swallowed by a hippo. That would have made for a better story in Jonah, just my personal opinion. We don't need this thing to be repeated. We don't need to know all these natural answers to try and figure out what's happened. Because God tells us, with me, nothing is impossible. I'm the God who breathes stars. I'm the God who sustains everything that is. You see, there's no such thing as natural laws. Gravity. Inertia. The rising and the setting of the sun. These things only are because the same God that created sustains them. You remember after the flood that part of God's covenant with Noah and his family was that he was going to allow life to continue. That never again would he flood the earth and destroy all life. But he went beyond this to say that as long as. I am continuing with you that there will be the proper seasons. There will be a a sowing season and a harvesting season. There will be cold seasons and there will be warm seasons. And the sun will rise and the sun will set. Because I will continue to work to make it so. The reason why a sperm meets an egg and creates a life. is because the God of the universe has made it so. And if the God of the universe declares, I will work in some other way. It is our job to submit and to receive it. Even if he doesn't show us all the ways that this thing might be possible. Credo, ut, and telegum. I believe that I might understand. Isn't that what we've been studying in the first chapter of Ephesians? That wisdom and insight and understanding... These are spiritual gifts of God to those who believe. So the question is, will you believe? And we will see where this story ends. It's with this young girl saying, let it be according to your word. That's the way we approach this text this morning. So it begins like this. In the sixth month, verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So it says here the sixth month, and this is a reference to Mary's relative Elizabeth, one who had been called barren. Apparently she was an old lady beyond the years. She and her husband, Zechariah, beyond the years that you would expect her to give birth to a baby. And we know that Gabriel had also been to this priest called Zechariah or Zecharias. That this angel had already come to him and told him that he would be the father of the forerunner of the Lord. This one called John the Baptist. He told him in verse 17 that he would go before him. That is, he would go before the Lord in spirit and power, turning the hearts of the children of Israel to the Lord. And we know this thing happened exactly as God had declared. And Elizabeth, she conceived and she kept this thing to herself, the scripture tells us, for five months. But now it's the sixth month and we read that an angel has appeared to this young girl in a city called Nazareth. Now, this was an indescript town, an unimportant town, a meek and mild kind of town. You remember that. When this man called Nathaniel met Jesus, what was his question? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That this is the way the minds of men work. That surely all important things happen on the coasts. 
Everything important, it happens in New York or Los Angeles. Everything important, it happens in Jerusalem or up upon a high mountain somewhere. Not in a town like Nazareth, but we're reminded that this is the pattern of God. That he uses and he calls the weak to shame the strong. He takes that which is of no reputation, that which is nothing to shame the proud. That the God of the universe chooses to do this most miraculous thing. To make this most incredible announcement in the history of the world. And he makes it here in Nazareth. It's like him coming to us and saying, I'm going to do this incredible thing. And I've chosen Porter or Dayton or Liberty. He doesn't do things the way that we would expect him to do them. And immediately we're caught back on our heels. If we're reading this for the first time, we're recognizing this story isn't going to go the way that I would have written it. This story isn't going to go the way that I would have planned if I had been the God of the universe. It was writing this redemptive history. It's going to come. He has come. Verse 27 to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, there's been much discussion about how old this virgin was, but pretty much the consensus is she was somewhere between the ages of 13, 12, 13, 14. Now, as a father of three girls, one of whom is 12, soon to be 13, this too ought to set us back on our heels. Now, of course, girls of this age, clearly they were of the age to be betrothed and soon to be married. And so it was a different time with different customs. And we thought about some of these things differently. But a 13 year old in Nazareth in the first century had some things very much in common with a 13 year old living in Crosby, Texas today. And this is the one that this angel has come to. And it says that she's betrothed to a man. And we don't know how old this man called Joseph was. Tradition tells us that maybe he was a little bit older because he seems to disappear after Jesus' 13th birthday. And so they wonder if maybe he was an older man that died sooner. But he may not have been. He may have been a young man himself, not much older than this teenager. Now, Matthew's account tells us eventually that this man, Joseph, that he was a, a righteous or a just Man, also that he was a carpenter and that he was betrothed to this woman. Now, that's more than modern day engagement. This is more than just they had exchanged a ring and and promised to be married. I I did some uh, we sat down and visited with Sam and, and, and Daniel this week and talking about marriage, talking about a wedding. And one of the things I said to Sam, Brian, you may be happy to to hear this. One of the things that I said to Sam is that when the day comes and the room is full. So all your family is here, all your friends are here, all the guests are here, all the money has been spent and you have the dress and the honeymoon has been planned and everything is in order. One of the last things that I'm going to say to you is it's not too late to back out. We'll get over it. Are you sure this is what you want to do? You're not married until you're married. But in that day and in that culture, this was something much deeper than that, a betrothal. This was much more similar to marriage, but minus the consummation. This is a, a legal agreement. There would have been a bride price that had been paid by Joseph or his family to Mary's family. And it was such a significant agreement, such a significant relationship that it would would require something comparable to divorce to break it. And so we might view this as a, as a sacred, sacred but, but incomplete union between this man and this young woman. And it tells us explicitly, unless we don't understand that, that this woman and this man had not come together physically, it tells us explicitly that she was a virgin. Not only had she not lay with this man, Joseph, She had laid with no man ever. Now, it's at this point that smart Alex will like to tell us, you know, virgin can also just mean a young girl of childbearing age. This word can also 
not speak at all to the coming together physically of a man and a woman, but it, it can be just about the fact that she's a young girl that's of the right age to bear children. But I ask you, what sense does the story make if that's the profoundness of it? That a young girl that's at the exact age when young girls get pregnant got pregnant, and that's the miracle. That's the thing that rocked her back on her heels? No. No. We'll see explicitly that she will say to this angel, I've, I've not known a man. How can this be? Because I've not known a man. Verse 28. So it says that this angel, Gabriel, he came to her. Now we have no clue what she was doing. Was she working with her mother? Was she preparing for the wedding? Was she asleep in bed? Was she playing outside somewhere? We don't know what she was doing, but we're not told that she was doing anything that would entice an angel to come to her. We're we're not told that she was there in the temple worshiping. We're not told that she was on her knees deep in prayer and meditation. We're not told that she was studying or memorizing the scripture, not doing anything particularly holy or religious. It reminds me of the man Gideon. You remember that he was there in the threshing floor because he and his people were terrorized by their enemy. And he was he was beating out the wheat. He was he was sifting the wheat because that's the way that God comes to people. It's not those moments when you go up on a high mountain and you scream from heaven. God, give me a sign. God, why wouldn't you speak to me now? God, why won't you just work a miracle as I demand it? So in those moments, in those towns that we don't expect it, to those people we don't expect it, at those times when you don't expect it, just minding your own business, not feeling particularly special or holy or righteous or worthy. Those are the moments when a messenger from God shows up and turns your whole world upside down. So he came to her and he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Again, going back to that man called Gideon, it reminds me of his the angels greeting to him. He told him, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Now, there was no particular mark of valor in this man called Gideon. Again, he was hiding in a place he ought not be. He, he, was, he, he was hiding in an underground place that was hot and there was no wind to help with the work, trying to sift out this, this wheat. He knew this about himself, too, like me. He looked around, perhaps wondering, are you, are you sure you've got the right guy? We're reminded that when these words come from God, when God chooses to work through a man or a woman or a 13-year-old girl, he doesn't pick them based on their prerequisites. Based on their own abilities. Based on the potential that he sees in them. The, the statement here where he says, oh, favored one, it's not a statement about the character of Mary, although we will see. I think this gets lost in the story sometimes. We, we, again, an overcorrection, perhaps. I've, I've heard pastors in recent days, they, they make a big deal about Joseph, about what faith it must have taken on Joseph's part. But what we will see is that Mary, too, was a very faithful one. She knew what this angel was saying and she trusted And what he had to say. But this statement, favored one, it is not a statement about the character of Mary or something that God sees within Mary. This this word that's translated here, favored one, it's only used one other place in the entire New Testament. And it's actually, we've just passed it in Ephesians 1 verse 5. Actually, it comes in verse 6, but I read from verse 5. We read that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us. That's the word with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Blessed by the grace of God above. It's undeserved favor. This is blessed are you, Mary. The the grace of God has come upon you. And again, if you've come out of some other background, if you grew up in the Catholic church saying, Hail Mary, full of grace, immediately you you get jumpy with this, right? Mary was full of grace. And and they can, our hearts can twist this into believing that Mary was, we're meant to believe that Mary was somehow a dispensary of grace. 
That Mary is the one that imparts grace to others. That's not at all what's being said here. It's that a remarkable amount of grace, some extraordinary act of grace is about to come upon this young girl. She is favored because the God of the universe has chosen before the foundation of the world that he's going to bestow this grace upon her. We see the way that it rocks her back on her heels. I mean, it, it, it shakes her. She, she wonders, what, what's this guy saying to me? It causes her to be afraid because she knows how unworthy she is of this kind of grace. But that's what this angel is saying. That's the announcement that this angel is making to her. It's a gracious God of the universe, the one who has been gracious to all. He's going to be particularly gracious to you in a way that you will find yourself favored above all the other women of the earth. I want you to consider the words that David read to us earlier. That's Mary's song as she comes to Elizabeth and Elizabeth responds because the baby in her womb responds to the presence of the Lord. Yahweh in the womb of a girl. And she begins to break into this this song, thanking God that he would come to the humble like this and the lowly like this and the meek like this. That's what this angel is telling her. That from now on, all generations will call you blessed because of the grace with which you have been graced. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying. You see, we see this angel Gabriel. We only see him three times by name in Scripture. There's two angels they were told the name of in Scripture. Do you know what they are? One is Gabriel. Who's the other? Michael. We only see the angel Gabriel three times in Scripture. We see him back in the book of Daniel. And there he appeared like a man. We see him before he comes to Mary going to the man, the priest, Zacharias. Now, when he appears to Zacharias, Zacharias was terrified just at the sight of him. Now, I don't know. Is that... Because of where they stood there in the temple, was, was that the thing that alarmed him? Or was it something about the angel's appearance? Angels can appear just like men. They can appear as mighty warriors. They can appear with some semblance of the power that they have and call men, cause men to fall down like dead. So when the angel, this same angel, Gabriel, appeared before Zacharias, he was terrified. He appears before Mary and she's not afraid. Did he approach her more gently? Did he perhaps look different at the point? Is it something about where she was at the time that he showed up? We don't know. But once he opened his mouth to speak and give the marriage, it says that she was troubled at the saying. Again, I have to believe that this is something about the recognition of her undeservedness of this favor, of this grace. One thing for sure, she knew her life was never going to be the same. When you, when you think through your Christian life, you've, you've got those moments. There's a lot of mundane mixed in with some really, really bad and some really, really good. Now, we know that God uses those really, really bad for our good and his glory. We know that those are moments of light and momentary affliction preparing for us a weight of glory. But we can look back at those moments and we can say, I know, I I see God's hand at these moments. I see where he was working and speaking and acting in my life here. You get those moments where you just know we're never going to be the same. And surely this young girl knew at this point things are fixing to change. He hadn't told her the whole story yet. But she just knows there's an angel standing before me and he has called me favored, graced. By the grace of God. The scripture tells us here that she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. This is the thing, I think more than anything else that we see from this girl called Mary. This is the thing that sticks in my head. The way that she considers, the way that she discerns, the way that she she ponders these messages from God. We're told here that she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Do you remember what she does after the baby is born and the shepherds come? By God's grace, we're going to study this on Christmas Eve. But do you you remember what kind of response she makes when the shepherds come and tell them all that the angels have said? 
We read in Luke 2, 19, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then do you remember what happened when Jesus was 12 years old and, and they, they bring him to the, to the temple and they go back, just, he gets lost in the shuffle. They, I thought you had him, you thought I had him, but he had stayed behind and they find him there and he's, he, he's, he's speaking and he's learning and, and it's just, it's just a, it's a sight to behold. And Mary and Joseph, they come running back in Jerusalem. They come back into the temple. They find their son there, Luke 2.49. And he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There's not a mother in this room that doesn't know exactly what this is. You watch that child. You hear a message. That first day comes and you hear this message. You're pregnant and you, you feel the weight and, and, and you consider what this means. And then, then, you, then you watch and you study and you think and you ponder and you consider and you treasure up within your heart. But how much more this one who had had an angel come to her and say, above all the women of the earth, you are to be favored and, and blessed and graced by God. And he tells her who he is to be. So can you imagine how much more closely she watched this child? How much more she had to treasure up in her heart, considering the words of Gabriel, considering the words of the shepherd, considering the words of Jesus himself. Oh, that we would be more like this. That you would leave this place treasuring all that you have beheld. Considering all that has been said and holding it in wonder. Not allowing it just to stay in this room, not allowing it just to stay in your prayer closet just for a moment. Not just checking a box, but storing it in your head and in your heart and then pondering and wondering and treasuring and considering and and mulling these things over. And the angel said to her, Mary, do not. I'm sorry. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Don't don't be afraid, Mary, 13 year old virgin who is betrothed to a man. You're only going to be pregnant. That's not exactly the kind of thing that would settle your heart, is it? Because the social and and cultural ramifications for this are every bit of what you would imagine. We see evidence of this even once Jesus has grown and he's there in John 8 and he's having this back and forth with the Jewish leaders. And they say, we are from our father, Abraham. We didn't come from fornication. You don't have to read between the lines to understand what they're saying about Jesus. The way that Jesus was viewed and by extension, the way that Mary was viewed and how Joseph was viewed. They believe that he had come forth from fornication. So you can imagine the way that this conversation goes. And I don't want to probe too deep because the problem is I'm going to lose some of you to your own memories of those moments. When you or you had to go to your parents or your own daughter, had to come to you and say, I'm pregnant. All of this, despite knowing what she knew, you can imagine still the weight that this thing carried. That the grace of God does not come without a cost. There's going to be a cost associated with this. And he tells her that his name is going to be called... Jesus, that's a common name. Yeshua or Joshua? Jesus. You remember that the one who the one who the Jewish horde demanded Pilate release, Barabbas. Some manuscripts have him referred to as Jesus Barabbas. It was a fairly common name, and it really just means Yahweh saves. 
But this was more, this one, that this child would be called Jesus. This was more than just a general statement that salvation comes from the Lord. It tells us something more about who he is. And and if we go to this story from Joseph's perspective, and I think that's probably God willing when we come back for next year's Advent season, that on this day, the Sunday before Christmas Eve, we'll consider this from Joseph's perspective. But we know that... That this angel that came to Joseph in a dream in Matthew 121, he says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's not just that Yahweh saves in general. It's not just that Yahweh saves from afar. It's that this one who comes is the salvation of Yahweh. He goes on to say, quoting Isaiah 7. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That this one who comes to save, he is none other than God with us. And we've spent many weeks trying to make that clear, that this isn't God light. This isn't God junior. This isn't just the appearance of God. This is God, fully God. But that he's come not to bring destruction and condemnation and judgment, But salvation, not only will Mary be graced, but through this Mary, the world will be graced. Verse 32, and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. Everyone imagines that their child will be great. Do you know what? He looks at their child and says, I cannot wait to see what a failure you become. I cannot wait to see all the ways that you let your father and I down. I cannot wait to see how much money I'm going to have to spend to bail you out of jail and pay for your rehab. No, you look to this child and you're full of anticipation of what is this baby going to become. And this angel stands before this woman and says, no, he will be great. Greater than any this world has ever known. You take the sum of all greatness. Now, see, the the problem, though, is for those that he's coming to, they define greatness on vastly different terms. He's not going to be rich. He's not going to have a palace or a castle or an army. He won't even have a place to lay down his head. He'll have but 12 friends. One of them will prove to be the devil and the other 11 will run. But he will be the greatest. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will be the greatest of the great. The sum of all that is great will be found in this one, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. More than just the way that all believers are called Son of God, this one who is within you is the eternal Son of God. But she goes beyond that to speak to him in his humanity as well, because Gabriel goes on to say, verse 32, he will be great and he'll be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now again, this is a young Jewish woman, and we see from the Magnificat, the, the song that David read to us, we see that she had great understanding of who God is and how he saves and his redemptive purposes. And so The minute that this angel Gabriel spoke these words, surely her mind went immediately to the covenant that God had made with King David. You remember in 2 Samuel that David wanted to build a a temple for God. He said, that's not for you to do, but I promise that from your body, I will raise up one whose kingdom shall never end. He will be to me a son. It can be a little bit confusing because in that same text, it says, and when he sins, I will discipline him. So, of course, there's a near fulfillment seen in men like Solomon and the kings that came after him. But only this one will have no sin of his own. He'll take the sins of the world upon himself. But of his kingdom, there will be no end. It won't just be a king of Israel. He'll be the king of the earth. The king of the whole universe. And we see this recognition on the face of Peter as he makes the confession. He Jesus asks, who who do you say that I am? And he says, I know that you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. 
Or the demon that he confronts there in the very beginning of his earthly ministry. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Mary, from the very beginning, knew who this one that was within her womb, who he was and who he would be and what he would do. All, all that we have been looking at in these previous weeks, go all the way back to the garden. Genesis 3.15, what did he say? From woman will come forth an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent, and he's the one. Going back to Father Abraham, that he would have an offspring that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this one that's within Mary's womb, he is the one. And of course, with regards to King David, here is his greater son, the one whose kingdom will know no end. All the promises of the Old Testament, all the hopes of the people of God, all that God had said he would do on behalf of his people. It is all coming to fruition right now in this child that this young girl would conceive. And now comes Mary's response. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How? Literally, it's translated, how will this be? Because I know no man. Now, I would point out to you that Mary gives no indication that she doubts any portion of what God has said through this angel. She doesn't doubt that this one that is going to be within her can be the son of the most high God. Can be the promised eternal king of Israel. Can be the one that brings eternal peace to all the earth. Those aren't the questions. Her question is just how? Because I've not known a man. Now, when this same angel, Gabriel, when he went to Zechariah, you'll remember that Zechariah had his own set of questions. And his conundrum was much lesser than Mary's. Mary said the natural way by which God brings forth babies. I've not participated in that. How will this be? He comes to this guy and he's just old. He's married and his wife is old. She's past the natural years of bearing children. He says, your wife is going to conceive. And his response isn't how. His response was, prove it. How can I know you're not a liar, Gabriel? How can I know that God's not just pulling my leg? How can I know for sure that this thing is going to come to pass? And so what was the result of that? He was struck dumb until the thing was fulfilled. You see, God receives our how questions, but not our prove it's. Doubt is a sin. Probing questions are not. God comes to you and he says, I'm working all things for your good. And for my glory, it's okay to look at him and say, I just don't see how. I don't see how this could possibly be for my good. I don't see how you could possibly be more glorified in this than in this other route that I would rather take. That's an acceptable question. Prove that you're for me. Prove that you have the power to work all things for my good. That's sin. And, and this posture that we see from Mary, we do see the same thing in her betrothed, in Joseph. I, I don't know the timetable. As you try to piece it together, I think I've got in my mind some sense of the timetable of what happens here. That Gabriel comes to Mary, he makes this announcement, and then Mary, for somewhat obvious reasons, decides, I need to get out of town for a little bit. So either she tells Joseph directly or maybe she tells her father and her father tells Joseph directly. But Joseph knows Mary goes to be with Elizabeth and it says that she stayed there for three months with Elizabeth. Elizabeth was six months pregnant at the time that Gabriel came. The text says that. So it seems like Mary stayed with Elizabeth until Elizabeth gave birth. But during this time while Mary is away, the scripture tells us that. Joseph was considering these things. He was considering divorce, not wanting to put Mary to shame. But the, an angel appeared to him in a dream and he explains the situation. Matthew 1, when Joseph woke, woke from sleep. So he, so he tells him, look, do not be afraid to take Mary as your bride. This angel is of God. This baby is of God. This is not what you think. Matthew 1, So Joseph woke up from sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. What, what we see here from Joseph is a similar posture of God, you have said it and I will trust in it. 
I heard one of the most asinine sermons this week from a local pastor, and he held up Joseph as a picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Mary had done no wrong here. She needed grace. She needed salvation because all sinners need grace and salvation. But Mary had not wronged Joseph. Joseph had not been wronged. We applaud Joseph. We honor Joseph because he trusted the word of God. He questioned. He considered. He pondered. And then he went forward in obedience. It's okay to ask the question how. How do we know that it's okay to ask the question how? Because the angel answered instead of striking her dumb. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, God doesn't tell her all the logistics, does he? He doesn't explain to her the way that this conception is going to happen because, frankly, that doesn't matter. That's not the point to the whole story. This is an unrepeatable, unexplainable, supernatural, once and an eternity miracle by God. But he's making clear to her that this child that's going to be conceived within you, he is not going to come through the ordinary means and he's not going to be any ordinary child. I'm not just going to take this child that is within you, this child who has come by ordinary means and raise him up to this great station. As incredible as that would be, that's not what was needed. If you consider all that we have studied these last three Lord's Days together, you know that this one could not be a savior of man coming from man. That it had to be the work of God. And he tells her explicitly, there will be the power of the Most High. I think this is a reference to the Father. It'll be the power of the Father, but it'll be the working of the Holy Spirit. That it's by this third member of the Blessed Holy Trinity That God will carry out this work. He will be the active agent in the creation of this child. Now it's true that the Holy Spirit is at work in every single conception that's ever happened. Babies are miracles. You think about every single thing that has to go right to bring a baby to the point of birth. So certainly the Holy Spirit is at work. God is at work. In every single conception that ever happens, but he's making clear, neither Joseph nor any other man will have any involvement in the conception of this child. Because again, I say man needs salvation and salvation can only come from God. So scripture tells us that Joseph didn't know her, not just up until the moment of conception, but until the birth to make clear. I had no hand in this. But isn't this an interesting thing in and of itself? Because who out there would have known that he didn't lay with her? Scripture says that he will overshadow Mary. What a picture. Maybe it's because in our Sunday school class, we are studying through the creation account, but my mind immediately goes to the Spirit of God. Hovering over this, the, the, the waters of the deep that are, that are formless and, 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 and void. And it's almost as if God is saying that just in the same way that creation was formless and, and, and void. And just as the way that you could look at creation and say, where's life going to come from this? That same spirit will overshadow you and bring life. This is the same picture that we see when the cloud of God's presence comes down to dwell with the people of Israel. And he comes down upon Mount Sinai and he comes down to fill the tabernacle and the temple. You fast forward to the New Testament. This is the same picture that we see three times. The same word overshadowed is used when it speaks of the Mount of Transfiguration and this shadow that represents the presence of God coming down upon that high mountain. When his people finally behold the glory that has always been there, veiled beneath his flesh, and the, and the glory of God, the, the presence of God comes down and overshadows them. And booming out from this cloud comes this voice that says, Behold, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That this is the means by which God's going to work. The presence of this life-giving, miracle-working 
Powerful spirit of God is going to overshadow you. That's how this miraculous conception will work. We don't, we're not told what she felt, if she felt anything. Was there an awareness? Was there a, did she see something? Was there some spiritual sense? We're not told any of those things, but we know that it's a miraculous conception. You see, we'll often talk about it as the virgin birth, but the birth was completely normal. The, the, the gestation, is that the, that the fancy word for it? The, the pregnancy would have been completely normal, but it was the conception and, and a halfway thought, I don't have, certainly don't have time now to try and unpack it this morning, but the preciousness of virginity, purity of this girl, and the preciousness of life at the moment of conception. But I, I want to make sure that you don't miss this. If we consider what Paul speaks about in Galatians 4, when he talks about what it meant for this one to be born... Under the law, but it, he, he says there that she was born, not that he, excuse me, Christ was born, not just through a woman, but of a woman. We need to make sure that our heads are right on this. You see, what happened wasn't that God took this pre existent heavenly body and just inserted it within the womb of this girl called Mary. And he, he didn't take the dust of the ground like he did from Adam and start over again with a new man. There was going to, to be this, this continuation and this connection between fallen humanity and this one who came. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, says that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. Again, a, a continuity and, a, and a, a connection between mankind and this one that comes. That he had a true body that could tire and grow weak and that the heel, his heel could be bruised just as God had promised in Genesis 3.15. That he could die upon a cross. That he could get sleepy. That when he was cut, he would, he would, breathe, uh, he would bleed. But it seems clear to me that the way that God did this was of this woman. It was of Mary. They took her egg. That Jesus Christ, we're speaking here of his humanity, that in his humanity, that, that half of his chromosomes, they came from her. His DNA, he got it from her. I don't know where the Y chromosome came from. I don't, supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Y chromosome came that made him a boy. But he was made of Mary. In his humanity, in his flesh. So I have to ask my girls last night. They thought this was a ridiculous question. And I'm not trying to be silly here. I'm trying to show you the continuity and the connection and the fleshliness and the humanity of Christ. Did he look almost identical to Mary? Because he didn't have any of Joseph's DNA. But he, he wasn't just some abstract human. You get this, right? He was born to the Jews, so he looked like a Jew. He was born to Mary, so he looked like Mary. He had probably dark hair, dark eyes. And again, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm not trying to ask questions that don't matter. I'm asking you questions that matter incredibly. He had a truly human body. And he had a rational soul. He had a human soul. Do you get this? This wasn't just a human suit. This wasn't just a human body filled with the spirit of God. That he didn't have a human mind or human will or human emotions. No, he had all of these. Do you understand? Scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature. God knows all things, but humanity doesn't. So that everything Jesus knew, he knew perfectly, but he grew in that knowledge and in that wisdom. And he had a fully human will. That's why he's able to stand there in the garden and say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. As the eternal Lagos, as the Son of God, his God was, his will was his Father's will. But in his humanity, he had a different will. He had a fully human will. He had the full range of human emotions. You see him weeping and, and growing angry. And I'm sure that he, he laughed. And again, I tell you, I'm not considering something that doesn't matter. When, 
You say, why does it matter that you that, that we know that Jesus was fully human with a human body and a, and a reasonable soul, a human soul, a thinking soul, a logical soul? Why does that matter? Because in the words of Athanasius, that which has not been assumed has not been healed. Do you understand that every part of us was broken in the fall? Not just your body. It is your mind and it is your will and it is your emotions. And he came to redeem them all. It's also why he came as as an infant. And why didn't he just come at 30 years old? Why didn't God just drop him out of the sky at 30 years old and he just lived out his ministry and then died upon a cross? Because the whole of life needs redemption. The whole of human experience is wrecked. So he came to take upon himself the fullness of what it means to be a man. And it came from this girl. I should have looked it up. How many billions of girls there's been in the history of the world? But it's a bunch. And this girl says the humanity that my son takes to heaven with him. The humanity that is exalted amongst all the earth. The humanity that sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns today. It comes from her. A guy named Gregory of Nicaea. In the 4th century, he said the good shepherd who came to seek and save the lost. He carries home on his shoulders the whole sheep, not just its skin. He's like us in every way. He had to be like us in every way. I don't have to, I'm moving quick here. Hebrews 2, 17. Made like his brothers in every respect so that he might destroy the works of the enemy and set us free from all. From fear, from slavery to sin, from the works of the devil, from our own flesh. Now, of course, the question then would be, well, but if he came from Mary, wouldn't he then be born with the sin nature and the guilt of Adam? Isn't that the way that this works? The guilt of Adam is passed along to his offspring and the sin nature of Adam is, is passed along. And I have said at times, I know other pastors have said at times, well, that's why Joseph wasn't involved because the sin nature is passed on to the man. I don't think so. I don't think that's right. Mary was a sinner. Mary herself was fallen. And Scripture tells us explicitly why this happened. But we know that all people are brought forth. What does David say in Psalm 51? That I was, I was conceived in iniquity. I was brought forth in sin. This doesn't mean, to be clear, this doesn't mean there's something sinful about the sexual union between a husband and a wife. That's a precious thing. It's got a appointed way of causing us to be fruitful and multiply and, and, and fill the earth. But you see... People have fallen into all types of kooky understandings because of this. The Roman Catholics, to their credit, they know that if Mary is a sinful person, that that sin nature was just going to get passed on. And so they come up with this idea of an immaculate conception that she herself was sinless. Well, then I guess her mom had to be sinless and her mom and her mom and her mom. It's it's silly. The Bible doesn't doesn't tell us this. It does tell us, though, that somehow, by the work of the Spirit, this human nature that was brought forth from Christ, it was sinless. It was free not only from the guilt of Adam, but from the sin nature of Adam. Hebrews 7.26 tells us that he's holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This text this morning, it tells us explicitly, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... Why was he born sinless? Why was he born perfect? Why was he born without that internal inclination that chose him to desire anything other than God? Because that's the way it works, isn't it? Jesus, just like all other men, will always choose what he most strongly desires at any given moment. And there was never a moment in his life when he chose anything other than God. That's why he says that my food is to do the will of him who sent me. How does this perfect humanity come to be? It says, therefore, because it is the Holy Spirit that overshadows you, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. One of the questions that I considered for myself when I was thinking through this 
particular text in this teaching was, is it an essential teaching of the church? Because I'm going to have us read on um, on uh, uh, Christmas morning as we gather together for worship there. We're going to read together the Apostles Creed. And so I'm considering all that is in that going, is all of this really essential to Christianity? And is the virgin birth? Is that really a non-negotiable? Like, do you have to know the virgin birth in order to be saved? Well, I would say the answer is absolutely no. You don't have to know that Christ was conceived of a virgin in order to be saved. But once you see that the scripture declares it, I don't know how you can reject this and call yourself a follower of Christ. Because we see how essential the teaching is. It's essential to what God has done. Therefore, for this reason, we have a perfect high priest. We have one that does not need to die for his sins, but can die for the sins of the world. Do you understand? That's how critical the virgin birth is. That's how critical the Holy Spirit overshadowing this young girl is. That's how critical it is that Joseph is not involved. Don't know how he did it. That's as far as we can go. And yet we see very clearly that he is fully holy man. I don't have time to show you the way that this comes together in this one person. We're out of time. I will just draw your attention to the way that Mary responds. And it is this. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. I would draw your attention to the fact that Gabriel wasn't there to ask permission. That can make us very jumpy. I've heard people before that take umbrage at the way we understand God's working in salvation and say, oh, no, God is a gentleman. He would never force himself upon anyone. Mary didn't get a vote here. The question wasn't whether or not this thing would happen. The question was, will you bend your knee in submission now? Will you recognize the sovereignty of your Lord now? And rejoice in what he has done. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the sending of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that he is not sinful and guilty and fallen like us. We thank you that he came to take upon himself the fullness of humanity. He might redeem the fullness of humanity. And we thank you for the example set for us. By this faithful young girl called Mary. Father we pray that you would cause us to leave this place. Pondering. Treasuring. Considering these things in our heart. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.